in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. Um, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So in chapter 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians, Paul, he's written this letter. If you look at some of these uh, letters, they, are, they call them epistles in your Bible, but they're basically letters that were written by an individual to a church body to address issues, to encourage the group that's there that might be a little bit downcast or be persecuted. Uh, but each time there's a purpose for writing the letter. If you guys have ever sat down and wrote an email, today we do email or text messages. There's always a reason that we're sending the message, right? Well, if we don't understand the message, it's hard to understand why he's writing what he's writing. And we can kind of get lost of that because some of Paul's letters get kind of long. And we study them over a course of many, many weeks, but we need to keep a, a perspective on why he wrote this letter. So in 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthian church, you can imagine uh, if someone writes two letters to a church and you look in the New Testament, there's not a whole lot of them that were a second letter to a specific group. Most of them are like one letter to one church, Galatians, Ephesians, you know. But you notice also when Paul was investing in Timothy that there is a first and a second Timothy. He wanted to make sure that Timothy was encouraged, and he also probably realized that he was dealing with some things that Paul had been through before. And so Paul was like, I want to make sure that you're encouraged, and I want to make sure you're equipped to do what God's called you to do. And I'm going to do everything in my power to help that along. And so Paul, as he's writing this second letter to the Corinthians, realized that he spent more time at the Corinthian church than he did at any of the other churches that he planted. Second, or in, in Corinth, he stayed there 18 months and invested in the folks that were there where the church had started up. So as he's writing to them in chapter 1 through 6, Paul explains the way that his ministering, that he is ministering, why he's doing what he's doing. And he's doing this because there were people that came along and said, you know, Paul's got some ulterior motives. You know, he said he was going to come to you guys after his first letter, and he never did. What's up with that? And they were discrediting Paul, trying to kind of hack away at what they thought was his good character. They were like, hey, is Paul really who he says he is? And so Paul addresses that, and he says, here's why I didn't end up coming to you. My plans changed. I made plans, and God kind of laughed and said, I want you to do this instead. So that's the reality, and Paul always made plans like that. He was open to the Spirit of the Lord changing his plans. Now, sometimes we need to be a little bit more willing to let the Lord change our plans. If we've got plans, and he says, I want you to do something else, and it can be because a family situation comes up. It can be because, you know, sickness happens. It can be for a lot of different reasons, but God can change our plans. He is the Lord. The word God, in the Old Testament especially, when you see it over and over again, sometimes you'll see it with a little g, means master. Whatever your God is, is your master. And the Lord himself, our God, he really is our master. We kind of get lost in that because most of the time when we have leaders, we either elect them or we choose to or to not work for someone. And if any time we decide we want to leave, we're like, I'm out. I don't like your policy anymore. And so in the same way, we have a hard time. We struggle with having a ruler that is our king. We sing about the Lord being our king. He's our king. He's our master. He's our leader. We've pledged our allegiance to him because of all that he's done for us. We're no longer our own being. We're his. He bought us with the precious blood of Jesus. 
And so we need to be open to his leading. But in chapter 7 through 9, Paul spends quite a bit of time, I would think, 7, 8, 9, that's three chapters of, of, of a 13-chapter letter, or I think it's 13 chapters. Paul encourages the Corinthians to give. Now, if you have ever sat in church for any amount of time, somebody starts doing a message on giving, you kind of check out. You're like, oh gosh, another guy asking for money. But Paul is writing to them to encourage them to do what they had already said they wanted to do. They had said, hey, we know that there's a problem in the Jerusalem church, that they need funds, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're now a part of this kingdom of God, and so we want to help them with their problem. And so he said, good, you said that a year ago, do it, do it. It's important that we give as believers, he says, because we serve a God who gave so that we could have life. God so loved the world that he gave. He so loved. He had a, an amount of love that was welling up within him that he wanted to get involved, even though it was our fault that we were separated from him. He said, I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to seek them out. I'm going to save that which was lost at the fall. So he does this for us. So Paul told them, get involved in this need. You said you wanted to be. Here's the opportunity. Don't let it pass. And he did this in order to be a blessing to the Jerusalem believers that were there in their time of need. So now the book changes to a different tone. Paul's been encouraging. He's been strongly encouraging them. He's trying to strengthen them or to build them up. The idea is that if you saw a building that was falling over, he was basically showing up on site with tools and lumber, and he was going to do everything he could to salvage what was kind of falling apart. And you see a lot of buildings on Main Street that need some work, right? So when someone comes in and they start strengthening the structure of the building, maybe tearing off the exterior and rebuilding from the foundation up, they're doing that so that the building will last. And Paul knows that the, the body of Christ is built by Jesus himself, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he also knows that he has a part in that. God's gifted him to be able to strengthen other believers in the faith through the teaching of his word, through the prayers that he can offer up to the Lord on their behalf. And so he's doing what he can practically do, and that's writing this letter to build them up. But sometimes when you're working on a building, you can tear the exterior apart. You see that it's kind of cockeyed and it's fallen over. And sometimes you dig a little bit deeper and you find that there's some rottenness in the wood. Or maybe the foundation has been compromised and there's a big crack in it. And so in those areas, sometimes it's better to kind of tear that section out and rebuild it. And Paul's getting ready to do that because there was a group of people that had crept into the church and they started compromising and teaching that Paul probably wasn't actually an apostle of God. And so Paul's going to deal swiftly and strongly with them. In Psalm chapter 23, you say, well, what does that have to do with the New Testament church? In Psalm chapter 23, David, who ends up being the king of Israel, he's, he writes this psalm, and it's kind of like a worship song like we were just singing. And he writes this song to the Lord, and he says this, and it's many times quoted, but I want to read through it real quick. King David writes this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, he provides everything I need. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness 
for his purposes or for his namesake. And then he, so he says, here's all the things that God does for me. Here's what my shepherd does for me. I'm his sheep. I am without the ability to protect myself. And so the Lord, he protects me. I'm without ability to provide for myself. So the Lord, he is my provider. He's the one that restores my soul. He's the one that makes me everything I'm supposed to be as I trust in him. And then he's the one that leads me in paths of righteousness for his purposes, for his namesake. So that's all that God has done for David as his shepherd, okay? Then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He says, I have confidence. I'm walking through this valley of the shadow of death. We read this passage and because it's become kind of a common funeral reading, right? We read Psalm 23, we think of, okay, the valley of the shadow of death is when you go on to be with the Lord. But the valley of the shadow of death is a place of danger, a place of uh, opportunities for, as sheep, the shepherd would lead his sheep to different grounds during different times of the year, and there was a portion of which where he would lead his sheep through a valley to get to the place where they needed to go. But the valley is a dangerous spot. Because if you've ever been in a valley, maybe you've even deer hunted in a valley. You can set up a deer stand on the edge of a valley and you can see the whole thing. And because you can see the whole thing, anything that walks out in that valley is easy to pick off, right? Even if they're in a herd amongst other animals, they can't protect themselves. And so you can pick them off from the edges of the valley. Well, in the same way, when God leads his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death... That's because all of the wolves, all of the lions, anything that would want to eat a sheep can hang out on the edge unaware. The sheep don't even know they're there. But David says, even though God's leading me through this dangerous place that we live in that tries to erode away at our faith and our trust in the Lord, we're in a dangerous spot. But David says, I will fear no evil in this position. Here's why. For God is with me. And then he says something interesting. He says, okay, God's with me. He says, his rod and his staff comfort me. Now, if you know anything about herding sheep, the staff, which we have one up here, thank you, Jesse, we have this staff, it's got a crook in it. And the shepherd would use that to guide the sheep. He'd use the hook to grab them by the neck and pull them in the other direction. He used that staff to push the, the sheep in a different, kind of like we do corral panels. If you've ever tried to corral a bunch of animals to be able to, you know, to give them shots and take care of them, put the stuff on there to keep the flies off of them, you know, you'd give them all this medicine. Well, they would use it to kind of gently guide them in a different direction. So that makes sense. That would comfort the sheep, right? That they've got a shepherd that's going to guide them towards food or towards a safe place. But what about this rod, you know? What about this rod? Well, this rod is not that stick. The rod is the rod of correction. The rod is what the shepherd would use to beat wolves, to get the enemies of the sheep out of their way. So when a wolf or a lion comes in, you know what the shepherd does? He doesn't sit around and go, I hope they're going to be okay. He goes, wham, get out of here. Because he knows if that wolf hangs out, wolves don't like eat grass. They eat sheep. They devour them. They destroy them. Those sheep are that 
shepherd's livelihood. You know, when he needs a, a nice warm coat, he takes and shears the sheep. When he needs, you know, he sells those sheep. He does all kinds of things with them, but they're, they're the provision for the shepherd. And so the shepherd takes care of the sheep. And because of that, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil. Okay? So here we are, and this is what it has to do with what Paul is doing. In chapters 10 through, I'm going to make sure how many chapters there are. Chapters 10 through 13, Paul starts to defend his apostleship. Because there are people who have crept into the church, and they're calling to question whether or not Paul's actually an apostle. Now, is Paul going to correct them because he's going to lose his fan club? Is Paul worried about losing his followers and he won't be as popular anymore? No, he's concerned for the sheep. Because these false teachers, these deceptive beings will come into the church. They'll creep in. They won't come in wearing the devil outfit with the horns and the goatee, you know, and the, and the pitchfork. Satan comes in disguised as an angel of light. And if he can deceive you, he will. He comes in just like someone that comes into a church wearing what you're wearing, carrying a Bible, saying they believe in Jesus. Because if, if Satan cannot destroy the church from the outside by pe- keeping people out of the church, you know what he does? He joins it. He comes in, acts like a sheep. They call them wolves in sheep's clothing, right? You've heard that before? They'll come in. And you, you know what wolves in sheep's clothing say? They say, bah. They sound just like sheep. But guess what? Inside they're ravenous wolves. They want to pick up. And all of a sudden, you know what will happen in a church? When a, a false shepherd or a false, they'll come in, and then all of a sudden sheep will start disappearing. It's the weirdest thing. They'll be picked off. They won't come anymore. They won't be a part of fellowship. And you'll know at that point that there's probably somebody coming in, creeping in, deceiving the sheep, drawing them away to follow them, follow their system. And so Paul's got this going on in his church. So Paul pleads with the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 1, with meekness and gentleness, the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He begs them in this letter. Does Paul have to beg? No. But he does. He wants them to understand, I'm willing to grovel with you get you to understand that these people don't care about you. They're going to devour you. So when he's present, he wasn't bold with them. He was meek. But when his letters, he was very strong with them. He didn't want them to be corrected to the point where they didn't want to be around him anymore. He explains that the way that they wage warfare against this kind of invasion from within the church is not the warfare that, that, God's, that, that men of this world use. Paul's not going to come in and punch these false teachers in the mouth. He's going to come in and he's going to deal with them the way that God would. He says the weapons that we war with are not carnal weapons, but these weapons are mighty in pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, casting down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Paul's ready to fight for the welfare of his sheep, but he will do so God's way. Let me give you an example of this, again with the life of David. I promise we'll get to 2 Corinthians 11. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, get a chance to read it later, David comes up on the scene. David is a shepherd. He's not yet king over Israel. He shows up to bring lunch for his brothers who are in the army of the Lord. And as he gets there, the two armies are on both sides of the valley and they're hanging out. And there's this one big tall cat on the other side of the world, or on the other side of the valley, and he's shouting, and he's a giant. 
His name is Goliath. Goliath is standing out there and he is mocking the Lord. He's not mocking David. He's not mocking the army of the Lord. He's mocking the Lord. And so he's out there blaspheming. One of you guys come out here and fight me. And if you beat me, then you'll win. And if I beat you, then you will be our servants. And so Goliath is mouthing these great swelling words. And David shows up and nobody's going out there to fight him. They're like, what are you guys doing? We got the Lord on our side. Somebody step up. And so he walks up and he says this. And they're like, well, but he's kind of big and we're kind of scared. And, uh, and he's going to whoop up on us. That guy's big. And David said, look, we've got to fight this guy. Not because of ourselves, not because of our own reputation, but the reputation of the Lord we serve. He is not dead. He's strong. He's mighty. He will take out his enemies. Somebody starts mocking him. You know who's going to put him down? The Lord. And I'm willing to be that instrument. And they said, you? You're going to go out and fight him? You're the smallest among all of us. You're the youngest brother. What do you got to give? And so David says, I'll go fight him. I don't care what you guys say. And so they all, okay, well, you just came out of the sheep field. You're going to need a sword. Where's your sword? So Saul, the king, says, hey, take my sword. Now, what you'll know about Saul is he was a really tall guy. David, not so much. Tall guys carry big swords. Guys my height do not. We carry, you know, like, we don't carry much. You know, we're not very big. So he goes, hey, here, take my sword. David goes, Look at this thing. What, in the, what am I supposed to do? With, this is going to be a hindrance. He goes, well, you can wear my shield, my armor. You can wear my coat of mail. You can put on my chains and my, you know, my big breastplate and all this stuff. You can be protected that way. And David puts it on. He's like, I, I can't even move. What do you mean I'm going to fight in this? And so he takes it off. He lays down the sword. He goes, no, thanks. I'm going to use what God's given me. This isn't because David, David's not going to fight the way the world does. David's not even going to fight the way that Goliath does. Goliath goes, come on out and hand-to-hand combat me. David's like, why? Who made the rules here? Like, why, why do I have to fight the way you do? I'm going to fight the way that God's tra- trained me to do while I've been in the sheep field. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out here without any armor. I'm going to trust the Lord. Not tempt the Lord, but I'm going to trust the Lord. Because David looked at Saul, and Saul goes, how are you going to do this? And David goes, look, I've killed lions with my bare hands. I think I'll be all right. I protected my sheep. Not because I'm strong, just because I had to. It's my livelihood. You do what you got to do, right? So David goes out there. He says, you know what? I'm going to use God's provision. Reaches down, picks up some stones. They're in a valley full of stones. Picked up smooth stones. Around here, we pick up granite. You know, we pick up something that we can't dig in the ground to get. I mean, it's there. There's no gardening going on. I mean, some people do. I, I don't. You know, you got to get dynamite out to get you a spot and then transplant some dirt. What he does is he picks up the stones. He gets his sling that he already has on him. He's been, he's been training in case the day of adversity comes. Going to have to kill that lion. So he's good at it. He's not just some guy that picked up a slingshot like Dennis the Menace to start flipping him. He knows what he's going to hit. And then he goes out there, not in his own might, but trusting that the Lord will deliver him because he's fighting on behalf of who? The Lord. So as he's trusting the Lord, he goes out in the field. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's going to die. He goes out there, and what does he do? He knocks down the giant. And then when he knocks down the giant, he doesn't play around and go, hey, I got him. Every movie I've ever watched where somebody takes out some guy that you're like, he's not going to win, they like stand on him, they put their foot on him, they're like, hey, I got him, look, everybody look. David doesn't do that. 
He picks up the head of his enemy and he lops it off with his own sword. <laughs> Anybody ever finds a snake out in the woods, don't stomp on it and think you killed it. Cut the head off. And that's what he does, right? So he doesn't fight the way that the world does. Everybody mocked him. Everybody thought, you know, David, he's not really that tall. He's not a big guy. He can't really beat anybody. And that's exactly what they were saying about Paul. They said, you know, Paul, they mocked him about his bold letters and his weak appearance. They mocked his weak appearance and his ailed body because he served the Lord for so long. He'd gone on all these mission trips. He got sick in his stomach because of the water. I mean, everywhere he went, he had all kinds of problems. They mocked his credentials. They said, well, you didn't go to the same Bible college we went to. You know, we got more knowledge than you. Uh, they mocked his speeches. They're in Corinth. It would be like going to some sort of famous place where people go and speak all the time. They had heard all the best orators that the world had to offer. And they said, you know, his speeches aren't even that great. He's not a very polished speech maker, you know. They, they said, you know, if you can't make a good speech, then how good of an apostle can he be? You know, they looked at his outward appearance. They even, quest, they even questioned his apostleship because he did not take payment for his ministry. They said, you know, if he was a real apostle, he'd let you pay him. He's not paid. That could be said about me. Is he really a pastor? You guys don't even pay him. But that's not the point. God had already provided for Paul. God had already provided for Paul. And he knew that if he took money from the Corinthians, because they kind of worship money, that they'd be stumbled by it. He's just doing it so he can make a living. No, Paul says, I've given it to you free of charge, because it's the same gospel I've received free of charge. And so Paul does all of this. He's going to approach these false teachers because he's afraid for the Corinthians, because they're a very tolerant group. He's afraid that these false teachers are going to come in and they're going to go, well, you know, they don't really believe what we do, but, you know, they're okay and we want them to grow. And Paul says, no, get them out of your midst because the reality is they're a cancer. They're selfish. They want to lead you alone to their own camp. They want you to lead you away from their, your faith. He was not afraid that he personally would lose favor in their sight. He was more concerned that because they were doubting that God had sent him, that they would start to doubt the gospel message. So Paul didn't care if the Corinthians followed him. He wanted them to follow Jesus. And this is why Paul defends his calling as an apostle, so that those who heard his testimony and believed in Jesus because of it would not be shaken by these false apostles, these charlatans, these phonies. And I think it's no coincidence that right before this message, last week, the gentleman that taught for me, Lee Reinitz, he planted a church up in Terre de Lac just a month or two ago. He taught the book of Jude. And the whole book of Jude talks about false teachers. It talks about apostates, those who have left the simple teachings of the Bible. And if you want to listen to it, he taught Jude, and it's on our website or it's on the podcast. So praise the Lord for men like Paul who are willing to be uncomfortable and approach these wolves in sheep's clothing. So I'm going to read real quick from Jude, just to, for those of you who weren't able to be here. In the book of Jude, here's the description that Jude gives to the, the church at the time about false teachers. So in Jude, it's like one chapter, it's 25 verses. He says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, strongly encouraging you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men 
have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then it goes down to verse 8. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh. In other words, they live in sin. They reject authority and they speak evil of the church leaders or dignitaries. So you can see already the description that Paul, the people Paul are dealing with. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts. He was talking about when they had communion or where they had a, a fellowship dinner. He said, these people are there amongst you. There are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. And then he gives some poetic language to describe their character. They're clouds without water. Think about a cloud without water. It's kind of disappointing, right? Comes over, it blocks the sun, and then it doesn't even provide any rain for the plants. It gives nothing and it takes everything. Uh, it carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit. If you see a late autumn tree without fruit, you kind of know that it, it's not a good tree, right? It's not a fruitful tree. Twice dead and pulled up from the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. It's talking about their condemnation, that because of their actions, they will be separated from God forever. They're not believers. That's what it's saying. It's not like they're, they're just a little off in their teaching. It's that they're leading people astray from Jesus, and they themselves, though they think they're believers, are not. These are grumblers, verse 16, complainers. Walking according to their own lusts, they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers at the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. So strong words, right? I mean, he's not light-handed with these false teachers but a description of those who are false apostles, false teachers, non-believers who show up in the church and seek to cause divisions and problems at their own gain. Praise the Lord for Paul who addressed these folks. They don't shy away. So like I promised, here we are in our text today, kind of a long leading in, but we won't take too long. Verse 1. Paul writes in chapter 11, verse 1, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. The folly that he feels like he's giving them, he's going to seek to basically explain to them that he actually is an apostle. If you ever tried to prove to somebody that you are something you already are, and it kind of feels foolish, like you're boasting about yourself. That's what Paul's saying. I, I don't even want to talk about this. This is weird for me, but I'm an apostle, and here's why. He says, and indeed you, you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He's jealous can jealousy be a good thing? You know, you think of jealousy, you think of somebody that's insecure, right? Well, Paul's not insecure. He's jealous for them like the Lord is jealous for you and I. God has saved us. He has delivered us from sin. He's delivered us into this new life. And he gets jealous when we start serving other gods. Think about it in a relationship. 
when a marriage happens, there should be some jealousy. You know, when Kelly and I first got married, she had some friends from high school that were guys. I didn't know those guys. And I told her, I said, she goes, hey, I'm going to go hang out with these guys. I was like, that's weird for me. I, I don't want you hanging out with other guys. I want you to be mine. Not in like a possessive way, but like we're, we're each other's now. I'm not, you know, how would you feel if I started going and hanging out with these other gals? And she was like, well, that's different. And I'm like, exactly. That's, you know, it, it, it's uncomfortable. I'm jealous. That's a good jealousy. Jealousy keeps a marriage together. Godly jealousy. Now, ungodly jealousy will break the marriage up. It'll be possessive. It'll be overbearing, all those kind of things. So there's a fine line there. But he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have, this is Paul speaking, betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Betrothal is a period of engagement. We don't see it a whole lot anymore. We don't call it that. It sounds old school. But betrothal is a period of engagement that in that day was sometimes even an arranged marriage. Now, I've been to countries where they do arranged marriages still, right? Uh, places like India, they do arranged marriages. And people from America are like, how could you do that? How could you know you love the person? But if you talk to people in India, even unbelievers, they say, I, I did not know about divorce until I spoke to American." You know, because the divorce rate is not what ours is. Now, tell us that we can tell them that they're wrong, but the fruit proves the root, right? Uh, I don't know that it's such a bad thing. Now, it's a cultural thing. It's not, God doesn't say we have to do it that way. But my point is, is that it's not necessarily a bad thing. So betrothal is something where from childhood age, two parents would come together in an agreement concerning their children one day getting married. They would shake hands and say, my daughter's going to marry your son, and they'd be in agreement with it. And the children would go along with it. And many times a betrothal happens later, and during that year when they're getting ready to get married, the couple gets to know one another, not physically, but they talk about their lives. They spend time together. They spend time with each other's families. And as they get to know one another, they're getting prepared to be married. Then the husband leaves. See, I said husband because the betrothal period, they understood that they were pretty much already married. To break a betrothal was the equivalent of our modern-day divorce. They had to file a divorce even though they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. There was an agreement there. And so during that time, if they wanted to break the betrothal, there would be a divorce. And then the husband, when he would leave for a time, he would actually spend a time preparing their house to build and to come back for his wife. He would come back for the wife. So then at that point, they would get married, right? And then there would be this big, long feast. Sometimes it would be a week. And after the feast, then they would go into the marriage chamber and, you know, it goes on from there. They would consummate the marriage. Okay, so what does that have to do with us? We are the bride of Christ. Paul is saying, I betrothed you to a husband. Now, guys, that's weird, but we are the bride of Christ. We are being prepared. God is purifying his bride. He sent the Holy Spirit. He sent, in this case, Paul to be a, an instrument of the Holy Spirit to strengthen them, to wash them clean, to let God's word continually cleanse them and prepare them for when the day when Jesus comes back for his bride, physically sweeps us off our feet, 
and takes us up to heaven to be with him during the rapture. And during that time, there will be a wedding feast of the Lamb where we will celebrate, all of us together, one table, we will celebrate this, this marriage that God has given us. We are the bride of Christ. And when he comes for us, we celebrate for seven years. After that, he will bring down his earthly kingdom for the millennial reign. Now, that's not for today. But my point is, is that we are followers of Christ. We are disciples. And as we are learning his word, as we're walking through this life, he's using things that happen in this life. And he's using his word to transform us by the renewing of our mind to prepare us, like Paul says here, that I may present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. He says, But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And he hearkens back to Genesis chapter 3, where there it is, Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything was perfect. They had fellowship with God. It says they walked with the Lord in the coolness of the morning. They were with him. They had unbroken fellowship. He was in their presence and they were in his. And they were there to tend the garden and to multiply and to manage. And as they were doing that, along comes this serpent. Not a devil with a pitchfork and a goatee and the horns like you see in the cartoons. But what came? A serpent, a snake, simple snake. And the snake said, hey, how's it going? Right? And then he started questioning God. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said? And that's what false teachers will do. Does God really mean this by that scripture? Has God really said? Was he really a human being but God in the flesh? Or was he really just a spirit? There was some false teaching about that. And was, was he really God in the flesh or was he just a man and a good man that taught us good things? So that's what they'll do. Has God really said? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, well, you're not really going to die. I mean, that's kind of strong words, don't you think? I mean, it's just fruit, just a little bit of this or a little bit of that. You know, all things in moderation, right? Is that what the Bible teaches? No. When God says don't, don't. It's for our own good. He says, but in verse 5, he says, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Ooh, I, I want to have my eyes open. I want to have special knowledge, right? He says, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> I would love to be like God. You know, I, I, would, I would be in charge of my own fate and all the possible. This is definitely a good thing. I'm going to eat the fruit. And then what does she do? She looked at the fruit again, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She was deceived, right? Just by a simple questioning of God's authority. And so Paul, in the same way, is saying, look, you know, this is deceitful and it's dangerous. He says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceive Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. God didn't tell us not to eat of one tree. 
That was only one command. They were like, oh, it's too hard. I got to, you know, they were deceived and they ate from the tree. Well, Paul's teaching them you can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's a free gift. You can't work to earn it. It's, it's that simple. And these false teachers would come in and say, well, but you got to follow this rule, this rule, and this rule. And by the way, you probably need to follow this system. And you can't do all these things, but you can do these things. And by the way, you have to come to my church to be able to be a Christian. And, that's, and Paul's like, look, um, they're drawing you away from the simplicity that's in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit that which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, I'm afraid that you guys are just going to put up with it. And I see this all the time. You can tell people that all they got to do is believe in Christ and do what he teaches them to do from his word. And they're like, that's, I mean, that, that sounds good and all, but it, there's got to be more to it. You know, don't I have to speak in tongues? Or don't I have to do these works and, and help with the soup kitchen? Or like, and all these other rules. And there are movements that have happened in the history of our nation where there's been these shepherding movements where basically the pastor makes every decision for every member of the congregation and people love it. They eat it up because this is something they can taste, they can touch, they know for sure. And yet these people are not following the Lord. They're following after some other system. And, but, but people, because they want to be able to taste it, they want to be able to touch it, they want to be able to know that they're doing God's will, they'll, they'll accept one of these forms of worship that's not biblical. And so Paul's like, You're, you'll put up with this, but you won't put up with the simplicity of trusting and following Jesus. You'll listen to these people who will basically cut away at my character, and yet I'm the one that stayed with you for 18 months and labored amongst you and loved you. I didn't take payment from you. I worked all night building tents. He was a tent maker by trade so that I wouldn't take payment so that you would have a clear picture of what God does for us. He doesn't take from us. He only gives. And as he gives, as a response, all we want to do is serve him just because he first loved us. This is how we know love, that Christ, while we were yet sinners, died in our place. He's not selfish, but he loves us. So how do we know if somebody's a true or a false um, teacher? How do we know? 1 John chapter 4 actually says this. You don't have to turn there. But in 1 John 4, this is what it says in verse um, 1. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And that was back in John's day. So how do we know if someone's a true or a false disciple or apostle or teacher or whatever they call themselves? How do we know? It doesn't seem that simple, does it? If they're going to be crafty and creep into the church, how do we know? Well, let me give you three tests. The test of character. Look at their lives. Now, no man can judge the heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. But God can test the heart. And what God tells us is if we will trust in Jesus and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us, that there will be fruit. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can see that as a direct contrast to what we read in Jude. There's the test of character. There's the test of creed. What do they say about Jesus Christ and what do they believe about him? Do they say that he is God in human flesh or do they say that he's just a good teacher? Do they believe he was a spirit who wasn't ever really a man, though he was God? Jesus Christ is God and man. And the people that come to your door, that wear the tie, ride their bicycle, I think now they have like little Ford Festivas, you know, they'll show up in a really nice outfit. They'll be all cleaned up. There will always be at least two of them. If you start asking a bunch of questions, they'll go get the other guy, and then he'll bring out the book of how to answer you. But my point is, people come in all the time saying that they believe in Jesus. The question is, what do they believe about Jesus? Does it match up with what this says? Or do they have to add their book to it? That's what will happen. So what do they say about Jesus? And then, how does that live out in their lives? So the question becomes, test of character, test of creed, test of converts. What are the people that they lead in their lives? How are their lives looking? Is there fruit from their lives? Now, this is a hard question because we need to ask ourselves the same thing. Am I a true believer in Jesus? Is there a true test of character that someone else could see in me? What does my character look like? Because we could very easily make this about everyone else. And I would love to do that because then I don't have to search my own heart. But we need to be careful because there could be people around us having to do the same test to find out if we're really in the faith. Not for any other reason to know whether or not they can follow us as we follow Christ. So the question becomes, if our character was tested or looked at by someone else, would they see the fruit of the Spirit? If they were looking at what we say we believe versus what we actually believe and live out, would it prove that we follow Jesus? And then is there the test of converts? What fruit has come from our ministry? Is there fruit in our lives? What do the lives of their disciples look like? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, here's what Paul said to answer that question about himself. He says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, letters of recommendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You, he says to the Corinthians, are my letter of recommendation. The very fact that your lives are different because of Christ's work in you is my letter that God has recommended me to you. You want to know whether or not I've been sent by God? You're following God right now, right? How did that happen? God used me. I didn't do it, but God used me to help you do it. And so Paul says there should be that testing that goes on. So before we close, we've got um, communion here. And communion is a time where we examine our own lives, personally, between us and the Lord. And I guess I would ask you guys this morning to put yourself through this grid. How am I doing when it comes to the character of Christ being changed and manifested or revealed through my life? Where do I stand with what I proclaim to believe and what I actually live out? And then, is there any fruit from my life that proves that my roots are based in Christ? Whether it's converts, whether it's other people asking about Jesus, whatever it might be. There should be fruit that comes from our lives when we abide in Christ. He says, if you will abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. 
It doesn't mean that you're trying to squeeze fruit out of your pores. You know, you don't ever look at an apple tree in a field and say, see it like worried and squeezing and doing all kinds of work and stressing out trying to, it just produces apples because it is an apple tree. So are you a tree that's rooted in Christ? And is there fruit that proves what your roots are in? I'm examining my own life this week as I study this. And I would encourage you during this time, we're going to take communion. We're going to spend time in contemplation. It's not going to be real long. But just take these moments as you realize the freedoms you've been given in Christ. What are you doing with that freedom? We're going to sing a song. And while we sing this song, I would encourage you, spend some time talking to the Lord. Listen for what He would say to you. And then uh, come up and get the elements and I'll lead you through communion after that song. And then we'll close with one more song. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to fellowship with you in the ordinance of communion. Lord, uh, thank you that on the night of your betrayal, that as the disciples came to you, as they were taking Passover, uh, you instituted the Lord's Supper where we would have this time to remember what you have done for us through salvation, through you sealing this promise through your own precious blood what you were beginning and getting ready to do, you showed them by saying this blood is to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and this bread is to be your sustenance, your provision through this life. Lord, thank you that your body and blood are what gives us newness of life. And as we consider what you have done, we look to today and ask, Lord, what do you you desire to do today? How are we doing with you? Lord, highlight the areas where you want to continue to change us and uh, make your character shown through us in this life so that others would see Jesus. And then, Lord, also we pray towards the future, uh, the future where you desire to use our lives, to reach others, uh, the way you want to change us, the, the different avenues of service you want to give us. But also, Lord, this glorious future we talked about today where we will indeed get to celebrate this marriage with you, Lord Jesus and celebrate it with our brothers and sisters in Christ and look forward to this heavenly kingdom that we'll, we get to be a part of. Not only do we get to be a part of it, but we're going to be joint heirs of the throne of God with Jesus. What an amazing truth. Lord, I, I don't deserve it. I can't fathom what that's going to be like, but I look forward to it. Lord, help us to examine our hearts to see whether or not we're living for that as our future rather than a temporary future where we can see whether it's retirement, whether it's just the perfect job, whether it's just the perfect family, where we don't, we're not promised any of those things. We ask for them. We pray that you'd bless our families. But Lord, we look forward to that day where we will be able to be rewarded for the things done in this life. And we pray that you would help us to gain lots of rewards so that we can give them to Jesus at the day that we meet him, Lord. So Father, thank you for this time. And we pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts Strengthen us as we trust in you. And Lord, hear our prayers and our worship as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.